0: Welcome to Indie Matters,
1: the show from the Nevada Independent. I'm your host, Joey Lovato, up here in Reno. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis down in Las Vegas. On
0: this episode of Indie Matters, reporter Jackie Valley and I talk with Sherry Hayes Zorn of the Nevada Historical Society. We chat about Nevada Day, how it came to be, and what makes Nevada's celebration of it so unique.
1: After that, we've got an interview on redistricting with UNR assistant professor Casey Lynch, who talks with reporter Tabitha Mueller about the redrawing of political district lines in the state and what that may mean for underserved communities. At the end of the show, I'm
0: joined by our man in D.C., Humberto Sanchez, to talk about all things happening in the nation's capital, from infrastructure and the reconciliation bill to the filibuster, debt ceiling, and more. Sherry Hayes Zorn is the curator of manuscripts at the Nevada Historical Society. She joined reporter Jackie Valley and myself to talk about the origins of Nevada Day, which is October 31st. I, I guess we'll just. Start with kind of like the big, obvious question, which is what are the origins of Nevada Day?
2: Well, Nevada Day isn't really recognized or admissions day, I guess, is the term that most states that do still celebrate it. It started out as admissions day and then becomes their state day. But it wasn't until like the 1870s at this point, the Pacific Coast Pioneers group in Nevada, in Virginia City, actually would do like a celebration dinner and maybe have some talks and lectures um, with their members to commemorate the day. And local newspapers, of course, would be writing about it and telling everybody how wonderful it was of being involved in becoming the 36th state with the Civil War. So, I mean, the papers always would write a little bit about it, but it really wasn't a celebration within the state until 1891. And by 1891, Governor Galkord is the one that actually wrote a bill that said, let's have Admissions Day. In Reno and also in Virginia City, they, they had parades and different events that were happening. At that time, there was a decline in, in mining, but there was still so much that Nevada had to offer. And, and there was a lot of commentary in the papers in California saying, well, their economy is declining. People are leaving the state. Should they even be a state? And so people were saying, hey, we're really proud of our state there's agriculture, so much is happening. We need to, to remember that. So that's kind of the first real official Nevada Day or Admissions Day event. And so it's uh, October 31st, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually our admission to the union, the official day of when our state became the 36th state. So it's just a happy coincidence that it also was Halloween.
0: Do most states have a, an admissions day or a state day, or, or is this kind of a unique thing to Nevada or how many states are actively celebrating their, their their admission?
2: So early on, yes, states were recognizing and at least making the governor would write a proclamation and declare this our admissions day and maybe celebrate. But as a whole, that number's declined and most, there's really not that many states that actually celebrate their day or missions day, like Nevada in particular. There's Hawaii is a state holiday. California is a state holiday. Colorado as well. But Nevada, it, it, its evolution for its Nevada Day has really become a, a big celebration that people really enjoy. You mentioned that only maybe a handful of states have such a holiday
3: now. Why do you think Nevada has grown into much more of a celebration
2: than perhaps other states? I think the reason for why our celebration is so much larger here in Nevada is the Society of Nevadans, these pioneers that kind of sponsored Nevada Day, their membership was dying off. And so they didn't have replacements. And and literally by 1937, um, they didn't have a parade because they just didn't have anybody left to help sponsor the event. So in early 38. Thomas C. Wilson, who was an advertising executive here in Reno, and then Judge Clark Guild, who then helped create the Nevada State Museum of Carson City. They worked with the Carson City Rotary Club, the Lions Club, and the 2030 Club to then find a new home in Carson City. And so that was then where it became established in Carson City for the the parades and celebrations. So you've got the legal holiday, you've got the events happening but then the war happens. So then you've, you've got three years that there are no events. Then in 1945, you have 20,000 people that come to Nevada day and it's a one day event. But after that, you start having the issues. And this is why in the end, they created Friday as being the legal holiday. And then the parades the Saturday is that you never knew what year essentially Nevada day would land on. And, and okay, it it landed on a Sunday. So then do we have the parade on a Monday or it's on a Wednesday and can you get it where... It's recognized and can kids take it off for school to come all the way to Carson City. So it its evolution changed over time. And so that impacted also who would participate, who would come, and how how people would get involved. Would there be a lot of people coming or not? So I, I always find that interesting. And then 99 happened, the legislature decided to make it. A three-day weekend. So then it was consistent, a consistent state holiday. So then it would allow people to have a three-day weekend. And that I think that really made such a difference.
3: I was curious too. So we we know there's the parade in Carson City that attracts lots of folks. Are there other things that happen across the state? I'm down in Las Vegas, and I don't know of too many festivities usually down here.
2: I was looking, and there really isn't. Now, some communities might have... I was looking through the papers, and sometimes they would have maybe arts, like art openings, and some activities in that way, but not not the parade.
0: I want to know if there's any fun, historical things that have happened on Nevada Day. Has there ever yeah. been like a, a shootout in Carson City or, or has the governor <laughs> run down the street naked after getting drunk at the parade or like something? Are there any fun stories <laughs> surrounding, the, <laughs> surrounding the parade in the holiday?
2: Well, I haven't heard that about the governor, but no, I was going to say, what I think is interesting, there was and there still is a beard contest in Carson City. And of the Victorian time period, men would grow beards, facial hair, it would evolve, you know, have the mutton chops, shorter, longer. But we had a gentleman that lived in Nevada, and his brother as well, Zachariah uh, Wilcox. And so he grew and never shaved his beard and had the second longest beard in United States and he lived in Carson City so they he participated in the beard contest they have an annual beard contest and when he passed away he donated his whiskers to the whiskers club the 49ers whiskers club in San Francisco and Mr. Uh, Wilcox had a 12-foot beard so that's pretty impressive and there's a picture of him that we have in our collection and he has his beard tucked in his shirt. So I I would think, how would you work and do stuff all day? You'd have to have it wrapped on your head, around your neck, I don't know. So I thought that was interesting. So I think that's an interesting tradition. One other thing I was gonna mention too, is that now maybe because of COVID and other things, but you used to be able to go and get a tour of the governor's mansion. And also then for Halloween, the governor and the first lady would hand out candy to children. So what other states do that? It's very it's very charming and historic Carson City it was all lit up and all decorated and they have historic ghost walks. So it's a wonderful uh, wonderful event that people have never done it. They really should. So I think it's all of that that really makes Nevada Day what it is and, and the buildup for those celebrations.
3: I have one final question. When I mean, it's yeah. we discuss as a news organization, we usually send a reporter and photographer there partially because it's the stomping ground for political candidates and other yes. elected officials. Has it um, always been that way or is that a more recent development?
2: I, to tell you the truth, I think, it's, I think it was happening in the 50s and 60s, but once it truly became the three-day holiday, I think it it was a way for more people to get together. But also, because it's so close to Election Day that it definitely, and it's also the state capitol, it's synonymous. Any parade you see, you always see politicians. They're gearing up for their next campaign. But I think also because of the holiday, it only adds that you can really go out and meet constituents and and visit with people. So I, I think it's an interesting assortment of different activities and people getting together to celebrate and the state's histories.
0: That was Sherry Hayes Zorn with the Nevada Historical Society. You can hear more from her and other Nevada experts in Jackie's story coming out later this week, and we'll also have some stories from the Nevada Day Parade and more on Nevada Day soon. Reporter Tabitha Mueller sat down with UNR Associate Geography Professor Casey Lynch recently to talk about redistricting in Nevada. Redistricting, for those who don't know, takes place every 10 years and is the redrawing of political boundaries to account for population and demographic changes that happen over time. Politicians, who are in charge of redrawing the maps, are often accused of gerrymandering, meaning they draw the new lines unfairly to favor their particular party or belief. Casey and Tabitha talk about the history behind redrawing political boundaries, how it's changed, and what is being considered as the process occurs again later this year.
3: We've seen Nevada's population kind of grow about 15% with that most growth taking place in Las Vegas. What does kind of this growth mean within the context of redistricting?
4: Yeah, so there's layers to that, of course. Um, <laughs> uh, I mean, the biggest thing is that it it means we have more work to do as a state in redistricting than states that have seen less growth, less change, less migration. And in particular, when we see the sort of lopsided growth where, you know, the growth is not evenly distributed across different districts, but we see really trends towards urbanization, major growth in the Vegas area and in Reno, and population loss in a lot of rural areas, it means that there's some significant work to be done in figuring out how to redraw these lines in a way that makes sense. And it also means that there's potential sort of structural shifts in our politics involved in, in some of
3: that. And why is it important that lawmakers or people redistricting sort of keep these groups that are similar together, right? Why, why can't we just go through and say, great, we just need an ideal population in this district of like 7,000 people?
4: Yeah. So there's a long, long, long history to this. And a lot of Supreme Court case law behind all of this. If we look at sort of electoral districts, Before really the 1990s, we see cases, right, where are especially thinking about sort of racial equity and in districting. You see a lot of cases where you might have, a let's say, in the Deep South with 35 or 40 or 45 percent of the population being black and zero black representatives, right, because voting behavior was incredibly determined, incredibly correlated to race. And you had a bunch of districts that there was always going to be a 55% to 45% majority minority, you know, white majority. And so that became obviously an issue, right? And so there's a long after the Voting Rights Act, after some of the amendments to the Voting Rights Act in the early 1980s, we see a series of court cases that sort of lay a foundation for when and how we can consider race in particular in redistricting. And these have been. Challenged left and right, and they continue to be challenged and will be challenged for sure after this round of redistricting. But the, the main sort of goal was uh, there were certain situations in which states could create sort of affirmatively gerrymandered districts to create majority minority districts, is what they were called, to be able to increase the sort of overall representativeness of our institutions. And so this was pretty effective really in the, the 90s if we look at redistricting in 19, early 1980s after 1980 census and what the sort of racial makeup of the U.S. House of Representatives looked like and other, a range of other sort of districts, internal to states looked like in the 1980s, you compare it to what that looked like in the early 1990s after that set of redistricting and you see a much more sort of equitable sense of representation.
3: That segues into my next question, which is kind of how do you think about how do you think lawmakers should account for these racial demographics and diversity and within certain areas like what you're talking about versus focusing strictly on making sure those population counts are equally distributed? So
4: equal population is obviously a major one. That's the one that you you mentioned. It's one that Nevada obviously takes very seriously it really, I think, historically important to know that we didn't always sort of place a lot of importance on that in in congressional uh, districting, at least on the sort of national scale. But up until the early 1960s, you had like really bad, like malapportionment of congressional districts often. So you could have one district with drastically more people than another because they had just been sort of drawn that way for partisan purposes and, and whatever. And there was, again, Supreme Court case in the 1960s, Baker v. Carr, that basically set off what was known as this reapportionment revolution, right? And it was a, a, you know, a long series that we kind of continue to see a redistricting commission, state legislature, trying to make the districts as evenly populated as possible. I think there are some legitimate critiques to say that in a lot of the U.S. we've maybe gone too far with that, where some states have really insisted that there's no more than one person difference per congressional district or per state senate or assembly district. That seems a little bit ridiculous given that we know the census data is not perfect, that there are drastic undercounts. There's some data coming out that says that the the undercount of the Black population in the U.S. is potentially three times worse than it was 10 years ago. There's, I know... Here in Nevada, there have been concerns about the undercount of the homeless population, which is very hard to sort of figure out how to make sense of all this as well, because where do they reside? What district? Where do you sort of place them? becomes an issue. So we know these numbers aren't perfect. And so the fact that there's often this sort of obsession with making sure we perfectly distribute them is a little, I think, absurd. There have been a lot of experts that have said 1% to 3% sort of difference between the most populated and least populated district is probably fine if you're sort of accounting for all these other criteria. One is contiguity, right? So the idea that you can't have district one, part of district one over here and part of district one over here, they need to be connected. It's important to maintain some contiguity. Related to that is this compactness rule. This idea that the district shouldn't be these, in theory, shouldn't be these sort of long, crazy looking districts. They should be sort of compact right sort of square circle rectangle nothing too sort of wonky looking that sort of seems like an arbitrary thing and it sort of stems from this idea that sort of proximity has something to do with the relations of a people and there's two more and one i think is really important to nevada there's sort of hotly debated but this idea of protecting incumbents to the extent possible so not sort of dramatically redrawing redrawing districts in a way that mean that incumbent politicians are going to be suddenly running to a very different constituency than they did last time. Very controversial. It's hard to do, especially when you have to redraw lines in some major ways, as Nevada had to do after 2010. You know, I sometimes get frustrated when I read or hear people talk about redistricting as if there were sort of neutral ways do it, right? And there is no neutral way to do it, right? There's always sort of values in this, right? And so the question is, are you doing it to try to promote a certain sort of partisan political advantage? And then the other one that's really interesting, and it seems from my sort of perusal of the Nevada legislature, uh, legislature website, like they're sort of currently mulling this over, Is this? and most states have some concern with this as sort of maintaining communities of interest And that's not really defined anywhere in terms of what a community of interest is. But often, right, it's the idea that if you have neighborhoods and there's a neighborhood association and there's a sort of a sense of community in a neighborhood and a sense of common political issues within a neighborhood or within sometimes church groups or sort of they might look at sort of economic mapping, the economic activity, and sort of commute where commuters are moving from. There's all different ways that you can look at communities of interest. There's no definition. It's basically any kind of re- region that you could make up in a geographic sense based on any kind of sort of socioeconomic, cultural, religious, the ideas that you shouldn't split them up, right? And therefore sort of di- dilute their access to political power by having maybe it's a small community of interest. But if you split it into three different districts, all of a sudden you have five people <laughs> in each district and they their sort of ability to advocate for their needs
3: is diluted. What would you tell somebody who wasn't familiar with this? Why does it matter?
4: Yeah, I mean, I mean, it basically matters as to whether or not we have a functioning democracy in any way, right? I mean, in the same way that and, and it goes back to representation, but I think it goes beyond that sort of basic principles um, of democracy. As I said earlier, right, there's no neutral way to sort of draw these lines. That's the other thing I'll say, is we can draw these lines however we want. It doesn't mean that they're gonna sort of stay the same for 10 years or that the sort of voting behavior that we expect to come out of those districts are gonna be what happens, right? And like I said, I, like the important thing is that the, these questions of values, of representation, of community are happening anyways, and it would be beneficial, I think, if we make that explicit and have that as a, as a public discussion.
0: To learn more about redistricting and map drawing, you can read our three-part series on our site now, nevadaindependent.com. The series includes the full story Tabitha wrote with reporter Sean Galonka exploring the demographic changes. All right and i am here with our man in dc humberto sanchez uh humberto we always start with the weather it's been about gosh probably six seven weeks since you've been on the podcast so how's the weather i'm assuming it's changed a bit in dc since then huh we are in the time
5: of year that they call indian summer around here which is Mm -hmm. it basically it stays pretty warm it's a little late in the year actually for it to be as warm as it is it's about 70 now but it's really delightful. The fall here is just wonderful, if if sometimes a little hot, actually. And then then
0: there's like a brainstorming and then it's abrupt change to winter. <laughs> <laughs> we've got we've already gotten snow in Reno in October twice. We've had snow already. So that is this is some of the earliest snow I've ever seen while living here. But I'm cold. Anyway, there's been a lot going on in D.C., although it's it's funny. Like I said, we haven't talked in about seven weeks. And I think we've been talking about the infrastructure bill every time we talk. What's going on with it? It's, it seems like not a whole lot, unfortunately. Well,
5: the the infrastructure bill, it's kind of tied to the reconciliation bill. And right now, the Democrats are negotiating among themselves to nail down the details of that. But we did see Vice President Kamala Harris come out to Lake Mead to talk about infrastructure. And she talked about the provisions in the bill that would help with the drought. And as, as Lake Mead is uh, at an all-time low in terms of the water level. So she used that as a backdrop to underscore the point that the provisions in that infrastructure bill would help with drought. And she was joined by the entire delegation of, of Democrats. I know that Susie Lee in particular, she has a water recycling provision that she got in that bill. Stephen Horsford talked about how he got been going to Lake Mead as a kid and brings his kids there. And he actually pointed to the spot that they go fishing at. And, uh, and he also mentioned the fact that with the, the, the water level being so low, all the recreation stuff has come to a, a screeching halt and that's hurt the economy, which would be another reason to pass the infrastructure bill. it, it was a, a big deal that they came to Nevada to, to make this point and so we'll see what happens like again, I think that you won't see any movement on infrastructure pretty much until the the details of the reconciliation bill are nailed down and they can even they could have maybe a framework or something like that to show for it and then possibly pass that infrastructure bill which has already been passed by the Senate we're waiting for the house,
0: And I think people generally have an idea of what the infrastructure bill is. For those who don't know, it's a bill that would create various infrastructure projects throughout the United States, create a lot of jobs and working on roads and stuff. But what is the reconciliation bill for those who don't know? The reconciliation bill is basically
5: parts of the domestic agenda that couldn't be included in this infrastructure bill. The the infrastructure bill, it got a, a lot of bipartisan support in the Senate. It was passed by both Republicans and Democrats in the Senate. That is basically hard infrastructure as a term that they've come to use here to describe it. Roads, bridges, water, broadband actually now. And so the, the reconciliation bill is what they call soft infrastructure that includes childcare, that includes community, free community college, that includes affordable housing is in there, climate change, addressing climate change. These are all things that are part of the, the domestic democratic agenda that Republicans essentially don't support.
0: So so the infrastructure bill kind of got split into two bills, at least. <laughs> that, that's right. It got split. They split this the
5: domestic agenda package into two bills because they thought they could get bipartisan support on, on some of it and not all mm-hmm. of it. And But altogether, they the Democrats want to pass both. What we're seeing now is where the two bills are somewhat tied together by design by the progressives because they want to ensure that both bills are going to be passed. Right now, the Democrats are negotiating among themselves. Into what is going to be in that uh, reconciliation, that Build Back Better Act, basically because it, it started out as a 3.5 trillion dollar bill, but concerns by moderates, particularly Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Senator Kirsten Sinema from Arizona, had issues with the total price. So now we're instead of 3.5 trillion, we're looking at maybe 1.5 to 1.2 trillion dollars. They're still mm-hmm. settling on that. There's been a flurry of discussions, and so we've seen actually last week we saw Senator Cortez Masto. She was invited to the White House to, to meet with the president, along with other lawmakers to talk about what we're going to see in this bill and what she wants in this bill. And I talked to her about that. And she made the case again. She's for a extension of the child tax credit, which was part of the American Rescue Plan. It's an enhanced version of the of the child tax credit that existed Prior to that passage of that law, she wanted to extend it for five years, but it looks like they're only going to be able to extend it for one year. And she says that's all part of the negotiation. She was very pleased that the talks have intensified and everyone seems very positive, whether they should be or not, that they can pull this off. They can get everyone in the Democratic Party to support these bills because they need every vote they can get.
0: One person I think is really like thinks the reconciliation bill is really important for them is Stephen Horsford, right? of Southern Nevada. Tell me why, why he's been talking about this so much, why it's so vital for him and his constituents. He's been adamant about the infrastructure bill, but he's also wants the
5: domestic agenda bill, the Build Back Better Act. And, and particularly, he also is in favor of this child tax credit. He was telling me this uh, last week that over 90% of his constituents who have children get it. And right now he's in a bit of a tussle with, with Senator Joe Manchin because Senator Joe Manchin looking to shrink the cost of the bill to try to get it down as, as low as possible. He wants to impose some kind of means testing for that bill so that people who, don't, who make a lot of money don't get it. And also he wants to impose work requirements on the bill. So you, meaning you have to work while you're getting it, you have to show that you're trying to get a job. Representative Horsard said basically that that would be a tax increase on my constituents. He's adamant that that not be the case. He said it's a do or die for the families in my in my district.
0: We talked about reconciliation and the infrastructure bill. Another thing that's always in the news, the filibuster, right? It's just been this big thing, getting rid of the filibuster and how that's going to change government forever in one way or another. And the people that are for it and the people that are against it, it has the filibuster changed at all? <laughs> it hasn't, but it's, it's really interesting. We saw that there was a, a, a town hall
5: with president Biden last night. And uh, he basically said that he would support changing the filibuster or doing away with it at some point in the future for, for things like voting rights. He, he brought that up and police reform has also been another issue that he's had trouble getting through. So that's a big deal. Like he, he spent 30 some years in the Senate He's an institutionalist, meaning that he supports the institutions of the Senate. The filibuster, of course, being one of those institutions, you need to get 60 votes to overcome a filibuster. And oftentimes, legislation gets 59 votes, 58 votes, something like that, which has which is a majority, but it doesn't advance or pass. So we saw that happen this week with the Voting Rights Act. There was a, a voting rights bill that came to the floor that had been negotiated they thought it would be some kind of compromise and no no Republicans voted for it. So it's, it's a very important issue to de- the Democratic base. And so President Biden said that this is something that he would before changing the filibuster in order to help advance. And so there could be some momentum in that direction, but we're not quite there yet. And it, interestingly enough, also, the president said he doesn't want to have that fight over the filibuster yet because he would lose three votes probably for the reconciliation package. And so that's a fight for a later day.
0: And so the last thing I want to ch- touch on really quick was uh, raising the debt ceiling something that's also talked about a lot. happens every year usually it kind of seems like this big deal but but really like we, we have to do it all the time to, to continue spending. you want to just talk about that really quick
5: it's the it's one of the ugliest votes you can take as a lawmaker because it may, it basically is you saying I, I want to spend more money I, or, or at least that that's kind of what, the messaging around it. in actuality it's you saying uh, I want to pay the bills we've already we, we've already racked up. But nevertheless, it's, it's a difficult vote. And so right now, we'll likely start to do it because it's a it's such a moving target. So December 3rd, it, we think it'll start. We'll start getting close. The, there was a, a deal to do a short-term debt ceiling last time. And the Republicans argue that the onus should be on Democrats to do this. And the problem is you need 60 votes. So Republicans have said, well, why don't you use reconciliation? This The same process you're using to pass this agenda bill. That would take time. That would open Democrats up to to what's known as voteramas. There's two of them. There's one to start and one to end, and that's basically a kind of no holds barred amendment voting marathon, which which is essentially used to gin up political ads. You make people vote on ugly things, and so Democrats are 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 not don't want to do that. And so th- therein lies the crux of the deal. And and without raising the debt ceiling, it would hurt the credit rating of the United States. And essentially, everything from credit cards to car loans, whatever would go up, it, it'd be a pretty disastrous. And so Democrats face a choice of how to, how to do it. There's also some speculation that perhaps it could be done administratively through the Department of the Treasury. But who knows? It's an ugly fight and it's a fascinating fight because you're right, it, they, it comes around every so often and it's always inconvenient.
0: All right. Well, Humberto, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast and breaking down everything that's going on across the nation that's still affecting us here in the state of Nevada. Happy to do it. Just a note here, after Humberto and I recorded this, Majority Leader Nancy Pelosi announced we may see a framework agreed upon for the reconciliation bill sometime this week, which could even lead to a vote on the infrastructure bill as well.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode of Indie Matters.
0: We'd like to thank Sherry Hayes Zorn, Casey Lynch, Tabitha Mueller, Jackie
1: Valley, and Humberto Sanchez for being on the show this week. We'd also like to thank Jackie Valley, again, who not only helped us edit this very podcast, but also helped edit the monthly newsletter, Soundcheck, which features extended interviews from the podcast and more.
0: If you want to help the show, leave us a rating and review wherever you listen and email us with questions, comments, concerns, viral potato salad recipes, cactus hugging suggestions, or whatever else you can think of at joey at theenvyindy.com or jacob at theenvyindy.com.
1: Our theme song is from the band People With Bodies, and we have additional music from Lance Conrad and original music from our own Joey Lovato.
0: Thank you for listening to Indie Matters. I'm your host, Joey Lovato. And I'm reporter and producer Jacob Solis. And we'll talk to you next week.
1: My cat's meowing. I don't know if you can I hear can that. I can hear. I can. Oh no! Oh my god! So Roxy, can you come back later?
0: Roxy wants attention.
1: All right. I think I might be in the clear.
0: Nope. <laughs> <laughs> Ha 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 ha.